0: Welcome to the Nature of Mind podcast. Our mind is our most valuable asset and most dangerous possession. It can be amazingly creative or terrifyingly destructive. The Nature of Mind project invites you to learn from thinkers in psychology, neuroscience, philosophy and Buddhism. Learn more at natureofmind.net. We hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Today we've invaded... Uh, the home of Dr. Penny Satori. Uh, We've turned up here in Swansea on a Sunday morning to uh, ask her about uh, near-death experiences. Penny was one of the first people in the UK to study uh, near-death experiences. She was a nurse for 21 years and worked in ITU for 17 years. So she's got direct experience of people talking to her a lot about near-death experiences. And of course, we're really interested in what does that say about mind? What does that say about consciousness? So welcome. It seems weird Hi. to welcome you <laughs> in your own, your <laughs> own lounge. Well,
0: welcome <laughs> Welcome to my home. Yeah, very
1: nice to be able to come. Thank you very much for letting us barge <laughs> into your life on a Sunday morning. So I thought we'd just start with that. Experience you had as a nurse—I don't know, 21 something more mm-hmm. years ago—that started all this for you. Um, say mm-hmm. a little bit about that to start with. I
2: thought.
0: Well, that it was all happened on a night shift, and I was looking after a man who was clearly dying, and he had quite a prolonged and suffering death. Mm. And I remember looking after him on this night shift. He'd just come back from the operating theatre, and he was in terrible pain. The nurse had handed over to me, mm. and. It was routine to bed-bath our patients in, in the night. And so I just got everything ready, prepared to give him a bed-bath. And I said, oh, we're going to have a bed-bath now. And as I touched the electric bed to put the ba- bed flatter,
2: hmm.
0: the man nearly jumped out of bed in agony. Hmm. And at that point, our eyes connected. And I felt almost as if I'd swapped places with him. Uh, uh. And he was mouthed into me. He couldn't talk because he had a tracheostomy. And he was mouthing the words, leave me alone, let me die, just let me die in peace. Mm. And it made me stop what I was doing. And I thought, oh, my goodness, I'm not helping this man at all. So mm. I called the doctor and he came and reviewed and gave him some extra medication. He was always already on phenomenal amounts of morphine as it was. Mm. Um, and so I thought, right, I, I need to bed bath him. But if I do that, I'm going to cause him more pain. Mm. So I pulled the screens around and I sat with him and I just held his hand. Mm. And um, when he'd settled, I washed the parts of his body that I could reach with his permission. Mm. And I kind of let him settle. then. And But that had such a profound effect on me. I couldn't stop thinking about it all night. Mm. And the following day when I went home from work, I mm. couldn't sleep after my night shift. And um, I phoned work about mid-morning to find out how he was doing. And my colleague said, oh, um, he, he died about half an hour after you left. Mm. And that sent me into like um, a bit of a depression, really. Mm. And I think that was when my spirituality first began to emerge because I started to go within and um that depression, I think, although it was depression, I was able to To work through it. It was awful. I I would never want to go back there again. But, um, you know, coming out the other end, it made me see things very differently as well. And so it made me interested in what happens when we die. You know, is it the end of of everything? Are we annihilated? Or is there something more? And I started reading all that I could about death. And I looked at it from different perspectives as well. And then I came across near death experiences. And I was quite blown away. And I Mm. just thought, wow, these people are saying that death is nothing to be afraid of.
2: Mm.
0: And I think initially, because nursing is an evidence-based profession and very scientific, I kind of thought it was probably some sort of hallucination. Mm. But the more I read about them, the more curious I became. And I just thought, well, I'm working in intensive care. This is the obvious place to do some research. And from that point, that's what happened. I, I was able to do some research mm. and um, it changed my life.
1: Mm. Mm. I'm gonna, mm. We're going to come into this, onto near-death experiences mm-hmm. in a minute and talk more about your research. But it's interesting because we have something in common that we well, you, you've been a nurse 21 years. I was a mm. nurse for about, uh-huh. I can't uh-huh. remember how long I was a nurse, but right. not very long, about <laughs> five years. I was uh-huh. a staff nurse in urology right. in Walsgrave in, in wow. Coventry. And uh, I thought I'd say a little bit about, because I had a similar experience to you. Um, Your experience there reminded me of mine. When I was training to be a nurse, Mm -hmm. um, we had a gentleman uh, admitted again late at night. He was sort of very, you know, very, you know, clearly dying, not speaking and so on. And I I don't know what it was like in your day, probably the same. But I said, I want to sit with him. Mm-hmm. if he's dying and the, the sister yeah. was saying "Look, we haven't got and understandably we haven't got time you know we, yeah. we haven't we have never you never got enough staff exactly have you? you know that's yeah. so you can never do those things very easily but I I was new and kind of insisted and as I, I sat I never met the man before as I sat there he was a, a, sort of asleep as it were and suddenly he suddenly opened his eyes and just like you were saying looked at me very directly mm-hmm. and it was as if it, it was if I it, it was if he it communicated directly to me. Mm-hmm. He seemed to say, he seemed to suddenly wake up to the fact he was about to die. Mm-hmm. And in the same moment, wake up to the fact that he hadn't lived. Mm-hmm. And then he burst into tears and he died.
0: Wow.
1: Um, wow. and it was it was that experience looking back on it, there I was in coventry in in Mm -hmm. in my nurse training i think that's one of the experiences that drew me to buddhism Uh but it's interesting because when i try to explain it to people people think it's a judgment i put on top of it you know Mm that you know i've made a moral judgment but it felt like that's what he told me with his gaze he didn't say anything
0: Uh
1: it felt like a sort of directly I knew what he was, a little bit like what you're saying. I don't know whether that. Yeah, absolutely. With the, that you, resonates
0: it? with me. Mm. Yes, definitely. So it was like more of an empathic experience, really, mm. in that I could feel everything that he was going through. Mm. And it made me question what I was doing as a nurse. I thought, mm. what am I doing to this man? Mm. I'm mm. not being of any comfort to him. And um, that's when I changed what I was doing to doing my tasks which I should have been doing and I sat with him instead and mm. and held his hand and that was the only thing that actually did mm. settle him, you know. Mm.
1: Yeah, it's so easy you know, than sort of do what you're sort of told to do, which is always make beds yeah. and do a bed bath. That's right, yeah. Exactly,
0: and this man had been in intensive care for quite some weeks as mm. well, oh. and so his whole life had been under the control of the routine of mm. ITU. Mm. You know, we'd, we'd turn them every two hours, we suction their chest, mm. oral and eye care, you know, it, it's all those different things that we're doing to them, so they mm. never get any proper rest. And this mm. man was in the last few hours of his life mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and it was a real privilege to be there with him mm-hmm. as well because mm-hmm. that was that was it for him you know yeah, okay. and it's a shame that it ended in that way that it did for him as well mm-hmm. and i think what it did for me then is it opened my eyes and so everyone i was looking at in intensive care all of those patients i thought this might be the last few hours of their life mm-hmm. So I think it's really important that we're able to recognise that and, mm-hmm. you know, to give that care and that appropriate care for patients at mm-hmm. the end of their life as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Before we get on to, you know, the, your research in near death, I thought it'd be really good because we don't I don't think we talk enough about experiences, you know, like after death, communication and near-death experiences because you talk again about an experience that you had as a nurse which really resonated with me with perhaps you might tell that story of, of being having a handover from the night nurses um
0: yeah well that's that's certainly when I was um a student nurse mm. and I can remember it was my very first day on the ward uh, yes. as a student yeah. nurse okay. and I was sitting there you know quite anxious yeah, yeah. and um, so the, the night nurse was handing over and she said oh the man in section c bed six he'll be dead by the end of the night he's been talking to his dead mother since about three o'clock mm. and I thought oh and I looked around thinking are they winding me up because it was my first day yeah. and everyone else carried on as if it nothing out of the ordinary. Mm. So I was really quite curious about this. So after the handover, I went out to this patient and he was just lying in bed at that point. And then I was going back and forth throughout the morning. You know, I had other nursing duties in other areas of the ward, but I'd go back and I did observe him quite clearly kind of communicating with someone I couldn't see. Mm. And then it was about half past 11 in the morning Mm. and he kind of got energy from somewhere. And it's as if he was... Trying to sit up, and he had this lovely smile on his face, mm. and his arms went up like that. And then he kind of just laid back down, and as if he was going to sleep, but he, he actually died at that point. Mm. And so I thought, wow, that night nurse was right. Mm. Everything mm-hmm. that she said has come true. And uh, yeah, so that made me quite curious at that point as well, you know. Mm. But again, I kind of just dismissed it that this was just some sort of hallucination at the end of life, you mm. know. Mm.
1: I wonder you say a bit, because you've written a bit about end-of-life experiences, and the, you know, the, there's a lot at the moment being said about near-death experiences, mm-hmm. but not so much said about these kind of, which I remember, yeah. I remember um, people mm-hmm. talking to people, and, and, you know, and again, we just, it was just like, oh, that's what, that doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, that's it. it. It's very well known amongst nurses, isn't it? That, Absolutely,
0: you know, yes. Right. And I think if you talk to me- most nurses, they could recall experiences where they've observed something similar. Mm. but maybe not attached any meaning to it. Mm. But it's something that does happen with patients. And, you know, sometimes they can be in and out of consciousness as they approach the end of their life. Mm. And um, sometimes you might see them gesturing. They might talk of going on a journey, packing a suitcase, mm. waiting for the train to arrive or waiting for their bus to arrive. And, you know, at this, at this point of life, you see all of these sort of things working out for them Um, it's common for them to have conversations that we can't see Mm. Um, but it's it's something that is often observed but sometimes it's just kind of put down to delirium or something like that Mm. when sometimes it can be quite meaningful
2: Mm.
0: and I think something at the end of life that happens as well is that patients might get agitated at some point as well Mm. you might Mm. see them working through agitation Mm. and sometimes that may be mistaken for physical pain Mm. Whereas sometimes it could be spiritual pain as well. Mm. So there's things that they haven't worked through in their life. You know, Mm. maybe they've been estranged from a family member Mm. and, you know, they want to make amends. Mm. And so those things can be playing on their minds as well, you know. Mm. Mm. And also as well, they might, things from their past might come back to them as well there's a lot been written on reminiscence in the elderly yeah. and certainly on people's yeah. deathbeds, they tend to reminisce as well and go back and talk about things that might have happened in their past yeah. as well. But it's, it's, uh, it's a privilege to be around someone yeah. like that as well at the yeah. end of their yeah. life. But I know when my grandfather was dying, we nursed him at home. Yeah. And um, the few days before he, he was died, he died, he started seeing someone in the doorway Mm. and he used to point and say, look, look who's there. Mm. And my grandmother used to get really spooked by it and she used to run out. (laughs) And at the time, I'd never heard of these experiences Mm. and I kind of dismissed it. I didn't explore it any further. Mm. But now, in retrospect, having done my research, I'm really, you know, I missed an opportunity there to speak about this in depth with my grandfather as well.
1: Mm. Because there's all sorts of phenomena that can happen near death, aren't there? Yeah, yeah. uh, you, you, you were saying about electrical, it has electrical effects sometimes. Yeah, um,
0: sometimes you, you might see um, lights flickering, things mm. like that. Um, when people die, it's common for clocks to stop mm. as well. I, I know someone has written to me um, when their member family died at home. And they had about 10 different clocks in the house and they all stopped at the same Mm. time. Mm. And that was the wind-up clocks and digital clocks as well. Mm. So I find that quite fascinating Mm. as well. Um, Some people describe maybe seeing a light leaving the body. I've Mm. never seen it myself. Mm. Um, Some people sense coldness around the bed. Again, it's something I've not sensed, but Mm. one of my colleagues I used to work with used to sense it all the time and she Mm. was usually very accurate as well you know Mm, mm. so it's yeah there's different phenomena that happen around Mm. the time of death
1: and there's also a phenomenon of after death communications that that you write about
0: yeah so it might be that you know people can kind of communicate in different ways maybe through dreams and things like that Mm. um and there's another thing as well that really fascinates me and that's the empathic or shared death experience so this is where people who are at the bedside of the dying person can share in like a partial journey into the light with the person who's dying. Mm. And um, I got quite a few cases of that. And I think the most vivid case that springs to mind is a man who um, wrote to me when I was still studying for my PhD at Lampeter university. And um, he was trying to make sense of something that happened when his wife had died. Mm. And he said, I, I really don't understand what happened um, but he said, we were in the hospital room with my wife. She was taking her last breaths. And he said, I was holding one hand. Uh, um, my daughter was stroking her, her forehead and my son was the other side of the bed. And he said, my daughter said, oh, look what's happening. Look, mum's Mom, walking on a path. And he said, all of a sudden, it was as if he was on a path next to his wife. And they were walking towards this bright light on, on the path. And at the end of the bright light was a, like a group of people. And out of those that group, a, a very tall man s- stood. And he came out and he had his arms extended like that. Mm. And he could only go so far. And then his wife continued without him. And she embraced this man. And he said, I've never felt such intense love in all of my life. And he said, this all loving embrace. And he said, I felt it, and my daughter felt it as well. Yeah. And he said, and then all of a sudden, we were back in the room, and my wife had just taken her last breath. And he mm. said, It's something I've never been able to understand because what should have been the saddest day of my life, I had a big smile on my face because of what I'd experienced. Mm. And I spoke to his daughter independently as well. And she said, I'll never fear death oh. after having that experience with my mum as she was dying the son didn't have any of that experience mm. but um the daughter and husband did mm. and he said you know when when we were left the hospital i was um quite embarrassed because i had this smile on my face <laughs> and i was thinking the staff might think what are they going <laughs> to think so yeah, yeah.
1: Well, what what do you make i mean what i mean a skeptic would say well they're they're just sort of hallucinatory or, or you know empathic hallucinatory experiences." Mm-hmm. but what do you what do you make of it i mean do you make something on because you've been studying it?
0: You know, yeah. It? Well, I think it's it's to do with our understanding of the mind and consciousness, mm. really, mm. because I think the the current scientific kind of understanding of consciousness is that the brain produces consciousness, and then mm. when the brain stops, so does consciousness stop.
2: Mm.
0: Um, and yeah, that seems quite logical. But then when you account for all of these experiences and you look at these experiences, you know, the people at the bedside, their brains weren't dying. They weren't mm. starved of oxygen or mm. anything like that. Mm. But they had a very clear experience which influenced how they lived their life after that as well. Mm. Um, and so for me, having done this, this research, the, the best explanation for me is that consciousness is primary and consciousness is around us all the time. Mm. But our brains, if you like, filter out that consciousness. Mm. But there are times in our life when that filter action becomes more relaxed. Mm. And so these experiences come into our everyday consciousness. Mm. So I think that makes more sense for me, because Mm. when someone's near death so it's an acute situation they might have had a car accident they might have had a cardiac arrest mm. so there's a very acute interruption to the brain or to the, the that, and so that filter action within the brain is widening if you like and mm. so you know rather than creating anything it's allowing something into our experience mm. Mm. that's usually screened out mm. and i think that just makes more sense to me you okay. know
2: yeah
1: yes indeed so we, we'll start to move towards you know all the studies you've done on near death experience. Um, before I you know I'll ask you to sort of tell us a bit more about because mm-hmm. there are all these common factors. that I think mm-hmm. it'd be really good to yeah. you know have have people get get an, an awareness of. But you know the other thing striking about your personal story is that you know you were one of the first people in the UK to study near death experiences. Mm-hmm. But also you did it on you in your own time, didn't you? Mm-hmm. You were working as a nurse. It's not like yeah. you suddenly got all this funding and no. you, know, no. you know gave up your job and no. you know you know, uh-huh. you, um, you know you were and you seemed really really committed to it and there's a point in the book mm. where you talk about you know how exhausted you were trying yeah. to do your your work and trying to do this yeah because you did a long a five-year study wasn't yeah that, that's you know, right you know a long study which yeah. is i think the first long study in the uk
0: yeah
1: um so what made you so committed to it do you think
0: I think that experience of looking after that man, when it sent me into that depression, mm. it made me question everything. And so instead of kind of seeking help and going to get antidepressants, I went within. Mm. And I think by going within and processing it, it gave me a very different perspective. And then I was able to really deeply engage with near death experiences. Mm. As soon as I read about them, I could feel getting obsessed with them, you know. Oh, I really became it? obsessed with near-death experiences. Yeah, yeah. Wherever I went, I was trying to find books on near-death experiences. And, you know, a friend of mine would say, oh, my auntie had one of those, in mm. you know, years ago. So I'd go and speak with the auntie and seek people out and mm. then spend time engaging and learning and understanding. And I was really, really hooked with them in such a way, like, never before had I been so obsessed Mm. with anything Mm. and I think because I was able to engage with it at such a deep level as well Mm. I think you know it it's almost like I felt like I'd found my life purpose Mm. and so although it was a lot of hard work it was really enjoyable work as well Mm. so you know, I just had this energy from somewhere. And it was as if I was in that state of flow all mm. the time. Uh, uh. And, you know, I was I was never bored of it. So I'd go to work, do my shift and everything. And then I'd come home and I'd be my head in the books again, mm. you know. Mm. And it it's just the way it was. It was just a s- subject that really, really fascinated and still does fascinate me, you know, mm. all these years later.
1: Mm. I mean, is it striking to me? Because for me, it makes it more your story makes it somehow more compelling because it's not like, well, it comes from your own experience, I suppose. Buddhism is mm-hmm. particularly concerned with that things need to be located in your own experience, not sort of a theory mm-hmm. that you're, right. that, but somehow it's grown out of your experience. And yeah. I'd say it's not that you were given a large funding stream. To no, do it. no.
0: <laughs> in fact, to, to do my PhD, I had to reduce my hours as a nurse right, then. So right. instead of working full time, I had to reduce my hours to make sure I had the time to write up my work as well, you right, know, okay. so, yeah.
1: So let, let's start to talk about near-death death experience, which is, you know, which you've done this five-year study on. Um, I thought it'd be good just to hear some of the most commonest shared experiences that people report have reported to you about near-death experiences.
0: Well, they vary, really, so they can start off with viewing the emergency situation from an out-of-body perspective where Mm. they look down on the emergency situation and they can see people around them what the medical personnel are doing and they might go through a dark tunnel towards a bright light and although that's a bright light it doesn't kind of hurt their eyes at all and Mm. sometimes they describe like a magnetic quality about this light where they're very drawn to it Mm. they might end up in the light, and they find themselves in a beautiful garden with lush green grass, Mm. vividly coloured flowers. They might meet deceased relatives or friends, Mm. and um, very often the relatives or friends tell them it's not their time, they Mm. shouldn't be there. Mm. They might have a life review where they describe reviewing the whole of their life in a matter of seconds, but they can see everything. Mm. So they can see the significant things they've done, insignificant things that they've done, and it's just as if it all flashes before their eyes in a matter of seconds Mm. sometimes they might come to a barrier or a border a point of no return Mm. that could be a doorway could be a river or gate or something like that Mm. but they know that if they cross that barrier they won't come back to life
2: Mm. Mm.
0: and uh, very often then after the experience sometimes they kind of revive in their bodies and think what's happened to me you know it's Mm. like whoa that's Mm. That's no other human experience that they can relate to. You know, it's mm. way beyond anything else they've ever experienced. Mm. And so sometimes they kind of keep it within. They don't tell anyone. They're afraid to tell anyone because mm. they think that they're going to be labeled as crazy. Mm. Um, so they very much keep it to themselves. But sometimes you might find that they want to talk about it. Mm. Um and that's the important thing, how they responded to them. Of course, so yeah. if they met with a dismissive attitude, oh, yeah, you were on too many drugs, which is really common to is say, you know, attitude, yeah. it can put them off sharing that experience and mm. they'll never share it again for the rest of their life. Mm. And of course, that comes with problems then because they don't integrate that experience. If they're unable to talk about it, they can't process it and they mm. can't integrate it into their life. And so it can cause all sorts of problems for them as well. Mm -hmm. It can cause relationship problems Mm -hmm. because their values drastically change. Mm -hmm. They're not the person they were before the experience. So they can't relate to their spouse anymore. Mm -hmm. Their their values are different. It might be that they might have had high, high powered jobs and really well paid jobs. But all of a sudden, things like that don't have any meaning for them at all and so you might see career changes as well Mm -hmm. and maybe people will train as volunteers or or train to become nurses as well or carers you know Mm -hmm. so you see all sorts of um different uh changes in their life after the experience Mm -hmm. as well
1: Uh, remarkable. let's go through some of those because that you know that first experience about the outer body you know that that seems very common Mm -hmm. doesn't it that sort of yeah, literally seeing the the, the surgeon or whatever. Yeah. And in your book, you talk about things where that's been able um, to be verified to yeah. some degree.
0: Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, well, there was one man in my study, patient 10, who actually did have the out-of-body experience. And um, afterwards, when he regained consciousness, he described everything that had happened hmm. he described the nurse cleaning his mouth with a, a pink sponge hmm. he described the physiotherapist poking her head around her head around the screens to check he was okay
2: hmm.
0: he accurately described which doctor had examined him Although prior to losing consciousness that doctor hadn't been on duty mm. and um, what he described as very accurate and I know that because I was there this mm-hmm. happened mm. at the time when I was there looking after that patient. Mm. So you know he was clearly when his he was deeply unconscious, he was having a very conscious experience where he was able to recall mm. everything that had happened and only he was out of his body looking down from mm. above. Mm. So how do you explain that? Yes, well? that's right,
1: yeah. So, you could see how one temptation is to simply just say, well, I, I haven't got a category to explain that, so mm, let's just dismiss it. Yeah. But I, I also thought I'm struck by this, so often there seems to be this journey, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a sort of cliche, isn't it, in, modern, in life, you know, life is a journey and so on. But it, there seems to be this journey to light, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, that seems very common.
0: Yes, it is. And that kind of journey can change as well. You know, it, it varies. So whereas some people might just feel drawn towards that light and glide towards it. Hmm. Um, people, for example, I've got a couple of cases from the Philippines huh. and um, there was one where a childhood near um, cardiac arrest during childhood huh. and this young girl remembers um Being in darkness and then seeing a pinnacle of light at the end, Mm. and she knew she had to get to the end of that light. And she Mm. said she started moving towards it, and they were like giant steps that were much bigger than she was. Mm. And it was really quite difficult to get up to that Mm. light. And she remembers it being a real struggle to get there. Mm. And she got so far, Mm. but she couldn't go any further. And she revived in the hospital then. Mm. And there's another one where um, a colleague uh, from the Philippines, her grandmother, had um, lost consciousness. She was completely unconscious. Mm. And uh, during that time, she recalls a journey where she was tra- going up a, a very steep hill to get to the top mm. of, um, to where the light was as well, mm. you know, and that was an arduous journey as well, difficult. Mm. So that, you know, the journey itself can vary right. from yeah, person yeah. to person.
1: And it's so often seems to be, a, the goal is so often associated with light. Yes. Is it ever associated with darkness,
0: do you know? Sometimes, you know, there are, there is the, uh, the distressing kind of experiences yeah. which don't get discussed very often. Yes, and I right. think that's a great shame because that is something that we also need to understand mm. a bit better. Mm. So there is more darkness associated with the distressing kind of experiences. Mm. And sometimes, you know, with the distressing experiences, people can describe feeling uh, like demons pulling them down into that darkness as well mm-hmm. and that can be a really traumatic experience for people you know they mm. might see images of people being tortured as well uh, they uh. might see images of thunderstorms and mm. lightning and they might smell burning and things like that so it's a re- it can be a really traumatic experience mm. And I know I've had a few people contact me for help in understanding theirs. Mm. And it's really difficult to research that kind of experience because, first of all, you've got the stigma and people are saying, well, I hear all about these near-death experiences. They're so nice. Mm. What about me? Yeah, Why yeah, have yeah, I yeah, had this distress in? Yeah, Is it something to do with my moral character? Yeah. Am I not a good person? Mm. And it's not. you know, mm. it's, it's nothing to do with the character of the person. We don't know why people do and why they don't mm. but when they recall the experience it can be associated with like post-traumatic stress as well yeah, yeah. so it's incredibly important that we do look at them and that we mm. do understand them and provide be able to provide some sort of help for people as well
1: mm. they do seem to be more of the exception don't they is
0: yeah that right? yeah there is if you depending on the kind of research that you look at and there's very minimal research out there mm. it's up to about Around about fourteen percent of all near-death experiences mm. are of the distress in nature.
1: Do, do you have your, your own? I mean, we'll come back into the sort of the more the more common ones. But do you have yeah. your own kind of hunch about those, those more difficult ex- experiences?
0: Um, I know it's kind of been suggested that it might be. The failure to relinquish the ego, so right. they're kind of clinging on to life and resisting the experience. Mm. And when they kind of relax into the experience, then it might turn into a more pleasant experience. Mm. So there's an example of Dr. Rajiv Party. Now he's an anesthetist in California, mm. and his near-death experience started off really quite distressing, like that. Mm. He saw images of people being tortured, and um, then he had this realization as. Gosh, the way I've been living my life, I haven't been living my life at all. Mm. And when he had that realization, it changed for him, and it changed into a very pleasant experience. Uh, then, uh,
1: uh. so it yeah. could be a kind of resistance to it the experience, possibly.
0: You? Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: Okay. So let, let's carry on with, them, as it were, more sort of not common, sound <laughs> mm-hmm. the right word, but more typical. Mm-hmm. Um, you yeah, So one of the other things, is, the other things that it really interests me is. You know, quite often there's this life review. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's often another world, isn't there? That's yeah. very, very beautiful. Yeah. You know, like a heaven world of some kind. Yes, yeah. um, we're hoping to interview even Alexander, and it mm-hmm. talks about this remarkable heaven yeah. world. Really, absolutely, um,
0: yeah.
1: And it that that seems quite comfort, but also um, a life review. Mm-hmm. I wonder whether you say a little bit about those two animals.
0: Um, yeah, so that's interesting because they kind of reflect. No, well. I say we would reflect now in normal time, but with Mm. the people who have the near-death experience, sometimes they're unconscious for a matter of seconds. Mm. And during that time, they can literally see the whole of their life Mm. played out before their eyes. Mm. And so it can be really significant things, but sometimes things that they have attached no significance to previously. Mm. And sometimes when they're reviewing their life as well, it can be quite uncomfortable for them. So Mm. they're looking at things that they've done and they think, oh, gosh, I wish I hadn't done that. You know, yeah. there might be elements of their life that they're ashamed of and they wish that they hadn't. Yeah. And sometimes they can be accompanied by a being of light. Oh. And that being of light that's with them, it's not judging them at all. That being of light is like a source of comfort. Yeah. And sometimes they'll kind of en- envelop them with love as they watch in their life review. Yeah. Um, there are cases in the literature... Where the being of light is kind of forwarded over a part of their life as well, oh, so that oh. they didn't have to face it. Oh, and uh yeah, so it's it's a very interesting aspect, that life review. But when the people come back to life after having that life review, it kind of guides and influences the way they live their life as a mm-hmm. result in the future after having that review. So it's well. more than just
1: a set of images, it's a real review, as yeah. it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, they're
0: literally living it, and sometimes they can find themselves in the shoes of someone they've interacted with. Mm. So if they've been violent with someone, they can feel like what it's like to be on the receiving end of that violence oh, as oh. well. And sometimes, you know, the simplest little gesture, like holding open a door for someone or smiling at someone, they can see the ripple effects of that as oh, well. Oh. So, yeah, it's a fascinating aspect, really.
1: See, for me, that's very interesting because, you know, but one of the things Buddhism would. Want to say is that your actions matter,
0: mm-hmm. and there's
1: a, there's such a, a movement in the world at the moment to think your actions somehow don't matter, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but you know, Buddhism has always emphasised that your actions matter, and so yes. it's almost as if in that life review, you're you're really seeing the effects of your actions, and yeah, you know, not not, not, not judge from outside, but the intrinsic effect of your actions.
0: Yeah, that's right, and and it's not a case of just watching images; it's they're actually there, reliving it, oh, you know, okay. they're yeah. feeling it as well, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah they're feeling it from a different perspective as well so they're you know they're wise to what they've done and that's why they might feel shame Hmm. or embarrassed by their behavior
1: Hmm. and what what you know then the other element that i'm struck by is you know often there seems to be that you're you're not you're here too early or you need to go back and Hmm. often there's a meeting of you know dead relatives and so on Hmm. um, that appear in a very benign form um you know, is is that 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 is is that a sort of quite typical experience.
0: It is, yeah. So what you've, if you look at the cases in the literature, a lot of them are kind of like embracing with their embracing their loved ones and really feel happy to be there with them. Hmm. Um, But very often they gently tell them, no, it's not your time, you have to go back. Hmm. Um, But what I found in my research in the hospital is that the relatives were actually quite angry. And they were like, what are you doing here? Get back there. You know, they were sort of that attitude with them, you know. Oh, really? And one man in particular, he said, I was there in this tunnel. And he said, I I met up with a group of friends of mine who were all dead. And they were really angry. They were shouting at me that I was there. (laughs) (laughs) He said, I don't know what I'd done. He said, I don't know why I'm here. (laughs) So I found that quite fascinating. Uh, uh... There was another lady and she met her mother and her mother was like, you get back down there for those children, oh, really? and so yeah, you know, it was like not this lovely. You have to go back. They were mm. shouting at them and quite uh-huh. angry.
2: Uh-huh.
1: What do you make of that?
0: I don't know, really. <laughs> no is that, yeah, is that just typical of Welsh yeah. near-death experiences? I don't, I don't know.
1: <laughs> it's funny as well because you know, you know, Buddhism believes in rebirth, so the idea is that you know somehow that consciousness is reborn. Mm. But I, I suppose there's a possibility that there's. That there's, a, there's a kind of timeless mm-hmm. place. Um,
0: yeah, well, that's it, because when they're in this near-death state, time doesn't exist. So, no. you know, they could... If everything that they were recalling... It would take years to experience in real time. Mm. But, of course, they're experiencing it all, sometimes in a matter of seconds. Mm. So, you know, there is no time in that realm mm. where they are. It's it's like time doesn't exist. Mm. You know what? They could be there, think that they're there for five minutes, or they could think that they're there for five years. It really mm. doesn't have any time, doesn't have any bearing on it at mm. all.
1: Yes, indeed. Mm. I want to go back now as well to what you were saying about, you know, that the... You've got these sort of common experiences, um, well, common mm-hmm. for in that realm. But then people come back, and as you say, one that one of the one of the points you make strongly in the book is that the importance of people actually listening to that and not dismissing it. Yeah. Um What you know, what because you know that the common dismissal is, oh, these are just hallucinations, all mm-hmm. right? Like you said, they're just more yeah. drugs. What What do you make of that? I, is there anything in you know why are they? Oh, they, could they be, you know, trying to take a sort of sceptical mm-hmm. view? You know? Yeah. Because um, it's important, isn't it? We, we're yeah. not trying to just believe That's or it. disbelieve. Yeah. We're trying to sort of think, are not we? Yeah. Um, and one of the things I've really appreciated about your book is you're clearly just trying to think Mm -hmm. about it yeah you don't have conclusions very much no not at all you know know, there's
0: still more work to be done you know Mm. and I was quite naive I think when I started doing my research Mm. I thought at the end of my five years when I I had a conversation with Dr Peter Fenwick who was one of my supervisors Mm. he said where are you going to be at the end of five years now then when you finish this and I thought yeah I'm going to have all the answers and how naive (laughs) was that you know it just opened up so many more questions for Mm. me that Can't be answered, Mm. so there's a lot more research that certainly needs to be done. Um, But of course, you know, I was skeptical. Could I prove that they were hallucinations as well? Yeah. Um, And so, what I did as well is I also listed and documented cases of patients who'd clearly been hallucinating Ah, as well. ah. And um, then I compared the two experiences, and I found that there were differences. Mm. So the people who had had the hallucinations. When I followed up and interviewed them later, they could rationalise that they'd been hallucinating and they were quite embarrassed by their behaviour as well. And they thought, oh, gosh, yeah, I'm mortified what I did and all of those things. And when I investigated what they were saying and I spoke with the nurses who had been looking after them, very often it was related to conversations going on in the background, Um, noises in the background, uh, uh, the tactile stimulations of things that we were doing to the patients as well. Whereas when I looked at the patients who'd had the near-death experience, it couldn't be attributed to what was going on in the background. Mm. And they were adamant that this was an absolutely real experience. And, Mm. you know, a few of them said, unless you've had this experience for yourself, you can't possibly understand it. Mm. And they were just absolutely adamant it was real. And of course, you know, that man who did have the out-of-body experience and recorded uh, everything that he said was a very accurate description of what Mm. actually happened as well Mm. you know
1: and also aren't hallucinations it's funny this word hallucinations because it makes Mm -hmm. you think you know what they are Mm because we actually don't don't really know what hallucinations are either because we don't know what the mind is um but aren't hallucinations usually more chaotic and um, yeah they're not usually so sort of they're not either unified,
0: aren't they? Yeah, so they can be very random and very bizarre as well. So, mm. you know, whereas the near-death experience tended to follow that pattern, you know, mm. that that's um, journey into the light, meeting with the deceased relatives mm. and things. So there was randomness versus a pattern as well. Mm. So very different experiences.
1: And then what, you know, from your research, what what did you discover about... Because lots of people must have told nurses and doctors mm-hmm. they've had this experience. And as you say, people, they don't doubt they've had an experience, do they? Mm-hmm. They don't doubt something. And they, they seem to often know that they died. You yeah. know, um, They don't seem to say, they don't present with, oh, I had all these dreams. Or mm-hmm. um, what happens when they're not believed? Because they must quite often be not believed.
0: Yeah, well, if they're not believed, you know, they kind of get dismissed and say, oh, yeah, you're on a lot of strong drugs. It was all due to the drugs. Mm. But that's not helpful to the people who are going through that because they need to process it. They need to talk about it. Mm. And if it's dismissed, they just think, oh, right, I am crazy. Mm. And they're afraid to talk about it. But they know that something really important has happened to them. Mm. And, you know, they don't know how to make sense of it. And I remember a good few years ago, there was a lady who was in her 90s and she wrote to me Mm. at the University of Lampeter. And she said, I've read a newspaper article about your work and I'd really like to thank you because I had that experience when I was 14 years of age. Mm. I told my mother about it and she told me I must never speak about it. Uh. And she said, I've never spoken about it until this point. And Uh. she described this wonderful experience that she had Uh. and she was never able to express it. or get a deeper understanding of it mm. which is such a great shame
1: mm, yeah, such a shame and of course one of the reasons why i mean it's difficult because it, i'm not there, therefore suggesting one believes either you know mm-hmm. from my point of view I, I just want to be open to things mm, you know yeah. that, like you i said i don't know what they mean yeah. um nobody really knows no. but dismissing something isn't that that's not right either you know because no. you don't know so you can't dismiss things if you don't know exactly um that's you know but I can't remember where I was going with that, <laughs> um, but um, what was I? I completely lost my train now. But if if let me just try and remember where i was going to go with that. But so yeah, I'm not. I'm not saying that you know. One, but they want, one should be open to them. Um, I suppose what happens if it's oh that's where I was going. You know if. Presumably the base of it that's being, being dismissed is because of a materialist worldview. Yeah. That you know, I grew up, I come from a small town in Warwickshire in the Midlands. Um, you know, the, the basic idea is, you know, I exist in a world that exists. I, my, my, my consciousness is, mm-hmm. like you say, a byproduct of my brain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when I die, that would be the end of that. That'll be the end of, there was mm-hmm. no me before, there's no me afterwards. But what interests me there is that materialist view of things, which is so, so difficult even to realise it's a view, isn't it? Mm. It feels like most people don't think of it as a view or a, they think yeah. of it as, well, that's just the case. It's mm-hmm. indubitably the case. It's just a fact.
2: Yeah.
1: But and what strikes me is that with that view, all, it's almost all you can do is dismiss it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's is, right. You know, yeah. And it's just that, you know, We've never explored the possibility that mind is primary. You know, mm. we've not not explored that aspect. Mm. We've just taken for granted that the brain produces consciousness and that's it. Mm. And it's been taken for granted. And it works you know, it, it works fairly well. But of course, when you get to these anomalous experiences, then it completely dismisses something which is very valid to patients as mm. well. Mm. You know, it's a deeply subjective experience that totally influences how they live their life afterwards. Mm. But if you look at, you know, you think about pain, that's very subjective as well. You know, mm. you can't dismiss to patients that they've got pain. <laughs> They're feeling it, not me. <laughs> yes. I would not dream of dismissing the fact that they have pain, you know. No, so I think it's so important that we pay attention mm. to these subjective experiences. They're very real to the mm. people who are having them.
1: Because mm. mm. if you've got this materialist view, because one of the things that Buddhism is saying is that your your view creates your experience. Mm-hmm. So if, if you think that, you know, that basic view that brain brain creates consciousness, mm-hmm. then then that will, you'll get you'll get evidence to confirm that view. Mm-hmm. You? Yeah, um, you get a sort of bias, really. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to just come on a bit more to to the I and mean, I, one of the things that opens out for me there is I wonder, you know, nearly all religious traditions have taught there's some kind of afterlife. They mm-hmm. teach them. And I want to come back in a minute to the cultural differences that you Mm -hmm. write about, because I think that's another important strand I'd like to explore with you. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, one of the things that, you know, nearly all religious traditions, if there is some kind of afterlife, it makes you wonder, I see what you think of this, but it makes you wonder whether um, that might have come from people's near-death experiences. Mm -hmm. It might have been that way round, you see what I mean?
0: Yeah, that's right. Because if you look at all of the the, um, founders of the world's, uh, faith traditions and things, they seem to have had a, a kind of near death experience as mm, well. Mm. So it could well be that the near death experience is the basis of, of mm. these um, religious beliefs as well. Because yeah. yeah,
1: there's so much in common, isn't there? Yeah. You know, the, this heaven like world, yeah. um, that the, you know, the figure of love mm. that you talk about yes. um, again and again. These descriptions of light. Yeah. Um, this descriptions of rising up and mm-hmm. so on. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, it feels very religious, which makes you wonder whether mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why people haven't wanted to go there, mm-hmm. because people are a bit nervous of religion, yeah. and you know, for yeah. some, sometimes a good reason. But mm-hmm. it might be that it's from near-death experiences. like Yeah,
0: that, that could be the basis of religions as yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, which is quite something to think yeah. of. Isn't it? Absolutely. But I want to yeah talk a bit about what cultural differences have you seen. So one of the things you talk about in the book is that how... Mm-hmm. Like, everyone seems to have them, children. Mm. It's not just university-educated people, for instance. It's it's very, you know, everyday people, children, adults, all different cultures. Yeah. I wonder what you might say a little bit about that. So,
0: um, with children, they might be more likely to see pets because they've encountered less people who have died as well when when they're children. Um, Sometimes they might see relatives who are still living as well with children. Um, But, yeah, and they might see kind of more kind of rainbowy type experience sort of things there. Um, Different cultures. So, for example, in India, um, when someone dies, rather than having a life review, what they tend to report is um, a scene where they meet Chitragupta, the man with the book, and it's a book of deeds of their life, and he looks at the deeds, mm. and that decides their fate from that point onwards. So, mm. it's, if you like, it's a sound form of judgment, um, mm. and so you've got that aspect. You've got then maybe um, difficulties in getting into the light with different cultures as well. Mm. So. You know, it might be um, like in the Philippines and um, other places, it's an arduous journey to get to the light. Mm. Whereas in the West, it might be much easier. It's the uh, drift into the light. Mm. So there are different cultural elements there, really, Mm. according Mm. to where they're from.
1: Of course, different cultural elements doesn't mean that the experience is unreal. It just could mean that it's filtered through a particular cultural shape. Absolutely. You you know, you write about... um, uh, a Buddhist practitioner who experienced, you know, being welcomed back mm-hmm. by Amitabha into a mm-hmm. pure Amitabha, yeah. you know, Amitabha is a Buddha mm-hmm. of the West. And, you know, and that is what the Amitabha Sutras say, that yeah. you are welcomed back. You know, and, yeah. um, there's a Tibetan Lama, Ringo Rinpoche, who had a near-death experience of exactly what Tibetan, mm-hmm. you know, texts say about what happens when you die. It followed exactly that right, pull, yes Right, you yes. Know. Um, but, yeah, so it seemed, it does seem to change culturally, doesn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah. absolutely. Um, and then, of course, the other thing I I wanted to talk about, because one of the things you write about strongly and you've written a whole other book on is the effect that these experiences have. Mm.
0: Yeah, they, they can have such a profound effect on someone, you know. Hmm. And um, I think... We don't see that, you know, people tend not to see that aspect of it as well. But it it really does transform the way in which people live their life and what they do as a result of it as well, you know. Mm. So, you know, it it can give them that big kind of boost of energy to turn their life into something else, you know. Mm. So, for example, Gigi Strayler, who is the founder of NDE UK, She contacted me because she was searching for answers about her experience. Mm. She'd had a a cardiac arrest in hospital, had been successfully resuscitated and had had this experience where she felt that she was uh, part of the experience where she was in the void. Mm. Um, It took her many years to process this and she was on a quest to find out more. Mm. So she explored it from different religions perspective. She had lots of um, therapy to try and understand it. And she realised that there is a need to support people who have gone through these experiences. Mm. And so, you know, she has set up NDE UK. She's Mm. put in all this work to do that. Mm. Her own, funded it herself Mm. and everything, Mm. all because she wants to do good and help others as well who Mm. have been in similar positions to her. And so that's what you find is that people really change after the experience and they become more altruistic more loving and compassionate towards other people and so very often they're not centre of their own little world anymore mm. they see it from the bigger picture and they want to do good in the world you know mm. so it's, it's very different then yeah
1: and, but it can also be quite disruptive can't it right? oh it yeah. can
0: yeah mm. it can really you know cause havoc in people's lives you know mm. there's a high divorce rate mm. because people just don't recognize their partners anymore you know Mm. um again big career changes as well so Mm. it does have many many different effects and Mm. people might lose a lot of friends as well because they're friends although they might want to try and help to understand they they don't know how they can help they don't know Mm. how they can understand it Mm. and so they kind of seek out other people or like-minded people who they can talk to you know and Mm. so friends kind of fall by the wayside as well. Mm-hmm.
1: They're big changes, aren't they? The big oh, absolutely.
0: Life, yeah. yeah, and, you know, there was one man who had had a big long career in the NHS and after his near-death experience, he just didn't feel aligned to his job anymore and he used mm-hmm. to get very angry and frustrated at the, the things he was seeing. And mm-hmm. so, you know, he, he had to get out of that as well. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, lots of changes there.
1: Mm-hmm. And the other thing that, you know, that's quite often mentioned is that I mean, what one of the striking things about near-death experiences is, is the vividness to which it stays with the person mm. and the sense of be, it being more real, mm. not less real, yeah. and, that, and that this life seems less
2: real by comparison. Yeah, definitely. Mm.
0: And what, what a lot of people describe is that that experience is etched into their mind for the rest of their life. Mm. And so, you know, they can just close their eyes instantly, they're back in that experience mm. there's one lady um who I, I used to see quite regularly and when i used to meet up with her she'd close her eyes and she said yeah i'm back here again and she'd uh. you know she'd have all these tears streaming uh. down her, her face as well because it can evoke such emotion as well yeah. you know the experiences mm. really do evoke that deep emotion and so i've spoken Well, I've tried to a few men, actually, who I've tried to interview, Mm -hmm. and they've contacted me and said I'd really like to talk about my experience. And I've met with them, and they've been been unable to express it because they're so overcome with emotion Uh, that they're they're in tears before me uh, and they can't talk uh, about it. uh, So, you know, it's a really, really intense and deep experience uh, for them.
1: I mean, I've not thought of that, though. But have you noticed any difference across gender, you know, about...
0: no, not really. No, it, it affects them, them all pretty, pretty much, much the same, the same yeah.
1: yes. Yeah, yeah. Then the other, the final area I want to look at, which is because there, there is, it starts, I mean, it, you know, I, I want to sort of, you know, what i have struck by by your mm. work is your willingness to be open and not mm-hmm. to, I think answers are sort of trivial compared to tw- questions <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, um, mm-hmm. what we need is better questions, yes. you know, um, Not answers so often are a bit pat, aren't they? Mm -hmm. We're not in a place for answers, but I really like your openness to things. But one of the things I that that really draws one up short is one starts to edge into the miraculous at times. Mm -hmm. You know where you know, for instance, even even Alexander, who you know we've mentioned, he shouldn't really be alive. You know, in terms of science, and you you've got a story that I was struck Mm -hmm. by, which. Shouldn't be able to have happened, that, mm. that man. I don't know. With the, yeah, you know.
0: again, with patient 10, uh, this was the man who had the yeah. outer body experience. Ah, ah. Further to that, he went upwards into a room, uh, like a pink room, where he mm. met his dead father and his dead mother in law and he didn't he'd never really met his mother-in-law before but recognized her from photos hmm. um he was very happy where he was and he saw also saw a man who he described could have been jesus but he's not sure if it was hmm. because it's not what he would expect jesus to look like because his his hair was long and scruffy and needed hmm. a comb in and uh, <laughs> think it was jesus a bit
1: tiny, yeah.
0: it? <laughs> and he said his eyes were piercing and he was drawn to look at his eyes hmm. Um, And he was happy where he was. He wanted to stay there. But the Jesus type figure said, no, it's not your time. You have to go back. Mm. And he said he kind of drifted backwards, Mm. watched the image fade in front of his eyes, and then he was back in his body in immediate pain. Mm. Now, when I followed up on an interview with him, he misinterpreted one of the questions that I'd asked. Mm. And I said to him, is there anything that you could do while out of the body that you can't normally do? Hmm. And by that, what I meant is that some people will think about a a location and they might find themselves there. So, you know, yeah, Yeah. and and that fascinated me. So that's what the kind of thing I was getting at. Uh, But he just said, oh, no, look, I can open my hand. Hmm. And I didn't realize the significance at first. And he said, no, he said, my hand is normally like this. Hmm. So the, the man has cerebral palsy. So he's 60 years of age at the time of his experience. So for 60 years of his life, his hand had been in that position. Mm. And he said, no, I can do that now. I can open Mm. it out. Mm. And when I discussed this with the physios and the doctor... They said, there's no way that should be physically possible Mm. because your tendons are going to be in that contracted position Mm. in order to open it out. You'd have to have those tendons released. Mm. Well, no such operation was done there. Mm. I checked on his notes. He hadn't had any hand physio or anything like that. Mm. And so he's gone from being like that to going like that. Mm. So how do you explain that? Mm. You know, and you know, we can't explain it, but we can't explain it away Mm, either. You know, it's happened. So to me, if we had an understanding of that, how many other people are out there with similar ailments and Mm. and injuries? And, you know, maybe if we understood that, we'd come up with a mechanism that doesn't require surgery, Mm. could save the NHS millions in the long (laughs) run.
1: Good. But it is, it moves us into a little bit like miraculous sort of healing, doesn't Mm -hmm. it? Because you know, I remember nursing people with with that, and you know, it mm-hmm. is impossible. You, you. Know, I remember trying. You know, you try and massage the hand mm-hmm. and you know, all that sort of thing. Yes. I remember that, you know. Yeah. You you can't without exactly. surgery just do that. Yeah. You know. um, Absolutely. It, it's literally impossible, sort of thing. Uh, you know, um um mm-hmm. And as you say, as you say, you can't mm-hmm. then say, but it didn't happen because it did.
0: Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And there, there are other cases out there. You know, there's David Bennett who had. Um, cancer uh, of the bones I think it was Mm. and uh, you know he was literally on his deathbed and he had a near-death experience and he has recovered he's really going strong now Mm. he he features a a chapter in in the book the transformative power of Mm. near-death experiences Mm. Uh, there's also the case of Anita Morjani as well who again she was on her deathbed in in Hong Kong in Mm. hospital and um, they'd called her family in and her brother was traveling to Hong Kong on an airplane because she wasn't expected to survive mm. but she had this near-death experience and completely changed her perception of everything and her mm. understanding of her life and you know she recovered from mm. from that as well mm. so you know it's this really fascinating mm. and it's something that we, we don't understand mm. but you know when you come across cases of remarkable healings Rather than people be interested and curious and let's find out more, mm. they're kind of pushed to one side, mm, and, best, yeah. you know, well,
1: they're like an embarrassment. Yeah, that's it, <laughs> like
2: because it goes
0: against everything yeah. that we know and understand. Yeah. But imagine if we had people who were more curious out there, and we explored those in more depth. You know, it could mm. revolutionise mm. our healthcare as well. You know. Mm.
1: So I want to start to draw on our com- I mean, I'd love to talk to you more and mm-hmm. more. I mean, I do think it's an important conversation because we were just talking yeah. earlier well, this... There's, there's so much... Well, I don't know who am I to say, but it's so easy to have a negative view of life, mm. <laughs> isn't it? To think yeah. that there's no meaning, that, yeah. you know, we're we're just born and we die and mm-hmm. what was the point of that? And you're seeing yeah. that more and more in young people, aren't you? That yeah. people just feel it's meaningless and, you know...
2: Mm-hmm.
1: There, there seems to me a possibility in this discussion to evoke that, that that life has some sort of intrinsic meaning i don't know whether that's oh, your oh
0: yeah absolutely look Look around us. Look at the images that we see on social media and on the television. It's all about going out there, spending money on superficial things that don't mean anything, mm. and having this great life and people there with big smiles, all this makeup, looking wonderful, mm. with this you know family around them and all this and that. And life's not like that, is it? You know, <laughs> no, it's, it's the image that's been sold to us by the media. Yeah. And I think people now are starting to kind of wake up a bit as well. You know, Mm -hmm. we've seen a lot of people with mental health problems as well. Mm. And is it just that all of a sudden people are questioning everything that is being sold to us by the media? Are we, is life more meaningful? Is there something about it? And I think if people are able to go within and start to think of life in a different way, Mm. it could really change the the way that they live their life as well, you Mm. know? Mm. Because I think a lot of us are not really living our lives we're existing we're not living life Mm. you know life isn't about these long working hours and things life is about enjoying your family being Mm. outside and Mm. you know being with nature and I think we we've kind of lost our way as a society really and Mm. I think maybe you know people are starting to wake up a bit Mm. Let's hope that they are. Let's hope that they are indeed.
1: Mm. So let's. Fin- I want you to finish with a little bit of a sort of personal question. You know, you've spent so long exploring this, and as I mm. said right at the start, you know, you're just doing that because it's your own mm. personal, you know, kind of, as you say, obsession mm. almost, yeah. um, fascination. Um, what What do you think it's done for you? Has it done? You know, because you know, you you you've been talking to all these people who have had near mm. near death experiences and death proximate experiences. Um, mm. What, what do you think it's done for you, as it were, if that's the right question?
0: Oh, it's done loads for me. It's completely made me reevaluate my life. Whereas before, I think my life was very much about going shopping, buying <laughs> things all the time, <laughs> going out, eating out, going, you know, having nice things to do, but meaningless and superficial things, you know. Mm. I think what it's done for me is give me meaning in my life, made me face my own mortality, because I'm not going to be alive forever. Mm. So not in this body, as Penny Sartori anyway, (laughs) you know, so, you know, it's made me appreciate the things that I do have in life, the things Mm. that don't cost money, you know, simple things, Mm. you know, spending time with my son and, you know, being going down to the beach and, Mm. you know, walks in nature, things like that. Mm. So it's made me very much live more for the present whereas before I was always kind of looking at my watch what time is it now what are we Mm. doing you know and looking projecting into the future now I think it's very important to be more in the now Mm. and um, you know it's made me interested in spiritual practice as well so Mm. you know I try to do a bit of meditation as well and Mm. you know really kind of take care of myself as well. Mm. So I think it's made me less superficial mm. and um, enjoy my life more. Mm.
1: And that's a very, very good result. <laughs> <laughs> very, yeah,
0: very good absolutely. Result.
1: And you know you've you've helped us all explore something that mm. we you know hasn't been explored right until mm. relatively and even now there's still a lot more to explore, isn't
2: there
0: Oh say, yeah, you know, there is. There's, there, a lot more. there's so many unanswered questions out there. you know, mm. I've literally just scratched the surface. There's mm. so much more out mm. there. And I hope other people are inspired to do their own research as well.
1: That's great. So That's a great place to okay. finish. Thank you very much, Penny. Okay. Um, so do uh, as, um, register for the uh, Nature of Mind. So what we're trying to do with the Nature of Mind is we're just trying to, I don't know, just say, gosh, we don't know about the mind. It's a mystery, the mind. I don't know. Penny doesn't know. Mm-hmm. Nobody Really knows. So let's be open to things and let's explore things. Let's look at the brain. Uh, Let's look at near death experiences. We're going to be talking about people who've had uh, memories of previous lives. I don't know what I think about those, but let's not worry about it. Let's explore. So do register. You can register for free, and then we'll be posting these conversations, and the conversations will be followed by interactive Zoom seminars. And then we're going to be trying to take something from those Zoom seminars into meditation. So what we'll be doing from this conversation, for instance, is, um, well, we'll explore, you know, what Penny's just saying there is, you know, what what, what we learn, what she's learned from this and what I feel I learned just reading Penny's book is we need to live better. We need to live more deeply, richly. And let's actually try and actually do that, not just watch YouTube clips about it. So we'll be exploring that in meditation as well. So do, do sign up and I hope to see you again soon.